Welcome to The Bitterest Pill. Yeah, this is a podcast uh, that I still do. I created him in a laboratory over the last 25 years. That I have a certain self-conscious guilt about asking people to help me realize my dreams. Even though I'm surrounded by people all day long that have no problem asking me to help them fulfill their dreams all the time. All the time. My name is Dan Class, and I'm recording in my garage uh, under the flight path at Los Angeles International Airport. As I say these words, it is uh, November 4th, 2016, the semi-official... Uh, anniversary of this program, The Bitterest Pill. Twelve years old today, I believe. Uh, 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 really, yesterday. For a, long, for a long time, I thought the birthday of the show was the 4th of November. And then I one day went back and saw an old blog post and realized it's the 3rd. It doesn't really matter. The point is, listen, early November 2004, I uh, stammered through my first podcast recording. And the rest has been nothing but unmitigated bliss. Uh, yes, I still do the show. Now, listen, it's been a long time since I've done a new show. And we really have a lot to get uh, straightened out. A lot to review, discuss, analyze, mock, etc. But I really only have about a half an hour to do it. So I, this may be a two-parter recording-wise. I don't know. And I have, we have a new mixer in the studio, which I'm not 100% sure I know how to use. So we will we'll, – we'll see. How have you been? I know. It's November. I know. It's – I know. Summer, Dan, in case you were wondering, actually ends in early September, not early November. Early November is what we call the beginning of winter. We're about 48 hours away from falling back an hour and I've decided to come out of retirement. How nice. So – Where I don't here the the problem uh, is where to begin, and I think I'm going to begin um, with Halloween, and then we'll talk about the studio. So, um, you know, my kids are getting older. When I started this twelve years ago, obviously I had tiny little kids, but Hudson is now seventeen and a half, and my daughter is thirteen and a half, over thirteen. Oh my God, is my daughter over thirteen and a half? Oh, jeez. Oh, God, I can't say that out loud again. It makes my chest hurt. So the um, so what happens is on Halloween now, instead of getting all dressed up and trick-or-treaters coming and we go trick-or-treating and I walk my daughter around and my son uh, plays scary sound effects through the computer out the windows and all that fog machine stuff, she goes to a party uh, in a nearby community that's all roped off and gated and really kind of spectacular and he invites a couple friends over and they watch saw they watch saw and they have uh johnny rockets delivered i didn't i didn't even know you could have johnny rockets right apparently if you're a kid with a smartphone uh you can just uh, have johnny rockets delivered i they know everything i know i don't know anything So this is what I did on Halloween. 
Now, see, already I'm rewriting the show in my head, but that's okay. We're, we're, listen, we've got, a, again, we've got weeks of material to get through. What I did on Halloween, because I did not want to be essentially by myself at home while the boys watched Saw, handing out candy to a bunch of kids that come here from another neighborhood, I'm, I'm done with it. No offense. No offense to the kids that must live in apartment buildings or something and they come here to have the suburban... I, I've paid my dues. I did it. I'll probably do it again soon. I couldn't do it again. I couldn't do it this year. Not by myself. So I hid in the studio here in the garage. And I made what is essentially a Batman cowl. Now, for many months, I've wanted to make this Batman cowl. And you know me, I tend to uh, uh, hyper-focus sometimes on certain things. I get obsessed with things that I have to learn how to do and then I have to figure them out, I have to do them. And somewhere along the line, and I know exactly where it was, so let's not pretend I don't know, and, and that's where we'll eventually get to. But I got it in my head that I needed to make a Batman cowl. So what does that even mean? I don't know. Because let's be clear, I don't sew. I don't uh, have a 3D printer. I do not know how to make castings out of clay or rubber, silicone or silicon or whatever it is. I don't know. I don't know anything. You know me. I'm just a guy with a microphone in a box in his garage. I don't know how to make a Batman cowl. So why do I have to make a Batman cowl? For those of you that don't know, a Batman cowl is the cowl. The Batman wears the headpiece, the thing, the like superhero head thing. And listen, I know I need psychiatric help on a large scale because I could not stop myself. Do you understand? From making a Batman cowl. Now, my idea of a Batman cowl is that what I would refer to as a Middle-aged man, 1966 Batman, TV Batman cowl. But because I don't want to sew and I don't want to buy yards of blue satin and sew satin and all that, I can't find instructions on how to – I can't find anything. But I have to make a Batman cowl. Um, I spend a week or two on YouTube – obsessively watching YouTube videos on how to sculpt things in craft foam. Because apparently in the cosplay community and in the special effects community, people make stuff out of craft foam. It's foam that you buy at a craft store. It's foam. It's sheets of foam. Now, sometimes people use sheets of foam from a craft store. Sometimes they use those foam mats that you buy that are like big jigsaw pieces. You can get them at Home Depot or a toy store or whatever. And you put them down for your kids or you put them down in your... You know, they're foamy rubber. You know what I mean? It's flooring. It's basically foam you put on your floor in like a jigsaw. Some people use that. So I get it. So that's my decision. Now, these things that you make out of foam, they look like helmets. So my idea, my rationalization... My compromise with myself to get past this obsession, I'm going to make a, 
a helmet, because that's what it turns out to look like as a helmet, these things. I'm going to make a helmet out of foam, but I'm going to make it somewhat like the 1966 TV Batman cowl. So this demands that I get some foam and that I learn how to pattern the foam and cut the foam and apparently uh, glue the foam, assemble, you know what I mean? Assemble, glue, and then eventually I guess you spray it with this and then it dries and then you spray it with that. And, and somewhere in there before the spray, you, you heat it up or something to make it make the round parts round. But you know me, I'm too uh, lazy slash cheap to buy a heat gun, which I, I guess I'm supposed to need. And the exact glue that I'm supposed to need and really the exact anything that I'm going to need. I figure I have an X-Acto knife and a Michael's Craft store nearby. I can make do with what I can find because it's me because I don't know why. I have guilt about the fact that I'm doing it at all. I haven't. Right, okay. Now, the reason I'm really making the Batman cowl, how I'm able to, to uh, rationalize. The Batman cowl is because of filmmaking. Now, I've told, I I think I told this to one person and then the recording, I hate it and I just scrapped the recording. So if you're the one person that's heard this before, I, I apologize. So in, uh, you know, what, what month was that? Like March or April, May, Art, May, May, June? I don't even remember. In the spring. You know, I do that thing where you have two weeks to make a film, right? A short film, the, the collaborative filmmaker challenge. And what they do at the beginning of the thing is they give you a quote, a famous or somewhat famous quote. And then from this quote, you're supposed to inspire yourself, write a script, shoot the thing. You know, you get actors, you get a crew, you, you do it, you cut it together, you mix it, you color, you do everything. And then you submit it and hopefully you get into this screening and you might even win some awards. And I did it last year and my film was accepted into the screening. I ended up uh, winning best comedy actor. I was thrilled. So in the spring, I was very excited for the CFC thing to happen again because I, I'm the man. I'm the man. I nailed it last year. Got my award. Got a, God only knows what I'll be able to do. I'm a year deeper into all this. I know so much more than I did. I can't wait to see what I'm going to come up with. This is so exciting. And unlike last year, I'm theoretically treating my attention deficit syndrome or disorder or whatever it is, whatever it is that makes me the awesome, crazy person that I am with all these ideas rattling around in my brain that I have to get out all the time. See, it's going to be perfect because I've got that a little more under control, right? So when I have to tackle now this two-week odyssey of making a film, it's going to be a snap because now I have the superpower that is uh, basically my prescription. So we go to the big kickoff thing. You meet a bunch of people, you have some Diet Coke, you understand what I'm saying? My friend Scott's there. They give us the quote. 
And, uh, uh, shoot, you know, it's been so long since we've done it. I I don't even remember the quote. The quote is, and, and I'll try to say it and then I'll remember it. So the quote is something like, democracy is the freedom to make bad decisions. Oh, shoot. Now I, now I have to look it up. Hold on. Hold on a second. Okay, I've got the quote. The quote is, <clears throat> democracy is the idea that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard by H.L. Mencken. Okay, so democracy is the idea that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. Now, that's the quote. Now, listen, this is an awesome quote, and this is a quote that I think I can really run with because it has the word democracy in it, and it has the expression good and hard in it. And and I figure, you know, as a guy that used to think that he did stand-up comedy that was kind of sociopolitical back in the uh, uh, Stone Age, I figure that this is perfect right in my wheelhouse. Last year, I did this film with this weird analogy where it was sort of like, Using country music as an, an analogy for some other st- – you know what I mean? So listen, it feels perfect. And my my initial response is, all right, I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to play a character based on Prince because Prince had just died, right? So I'm going to do a thing. And I'm going to play essentially Prince. I'm not, not a black – right? I'm not going to do a black thing. I'm just saying that it's a character that I could play. That looks essentially like me but with a wig that is based on Prince, a very sexualized character. But, you know, democracy is blah, blah, blah. And he basically sells out and and uh, being kind of sexual. And then it just escalates, escalates high. It would be so hilarious. And I could do fake, you know, press clippings and fake music videos and fake this and fake that. It would really be something. And so that kind of gets stuck in my, my head for a couple of days. And the truth is with that, listen, I've got musical instruments. I've already got wigs. I've got clothes here of mine and my wife's. We could put the costumes together. I got friends that could play the other characters. We can record the music here in the studio. I can get Hudson to help me. He's a musician. I have an electric guitar that we can put a weird symbol on that is like the, you know what I mean? Like we've, we could really pull this off. Except that I only have two weeks and I am only one person, and I, when it comes to these kind of projects, I'm not that good at delegating. And it's something that I want to explore, and it's something that – I don't know if you deal with this, but I think part of it is that I have a certain self-conscious guilt about asking people to help me realize my dreams – even though I'm surrounded by people all day long that have no problem asking me to help them fulfill their dreams all the time. So the Prince idea becomes so big in my head that I can no longer conceive of doing it in the time allotted. With the resources allotted, it would take too many people, too many man hours. It's too Sisyphusian a task. Even though it sounds like such a fun, because it has to be kind of a fun thing for me to do. Right? I just don't want to do it. That's a lot of work to put in, right? So 
And as I explain this to you, I can't even get the timeline right because it's so messed up. For me, not, not the timeline that they put, that they laid down. No, no, no. Their, their timeline is perfectly fine. My time, the Dan timeline it was bad. Because we had the lunch thing on a Wednesday or a Thursday. Let's say, this might not be exactly right, but let's say Wednesday. Okay? So, if the lunch is on a Wednesday, you have two weeks. That means you have two weekends. Right? You've got the end of a week, you've got a weekend, you've got an entire work week, you've got another weekend, and then you've got half another work week to do your film. Now, if you don't have an actual job job, that should be plenty of time. Some people, right, the launch party is on Wednesday. Some people shoot the first weekend. Which means they write, rewrite, presumably cast, prep, everything within two days. Okay, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that because I have to decide what to write. I need to come up with a concept. You know, it's got to have a thing. And this is my sophomore effort, so it's got to live up at least to last year's Melophobia Americana. So I start jotting down ideas. And I'm jotting and jotting and jotting. And it's not for lack of ideas. It's for lack of giving a crap about the ideas. So at a certain point, our days are, trust me, days are ticking by. I finally, out of sheer desperation in the middle, gosh, when would this have been? Oh my God, it's, it's all such a blur. Half of this is going to be made up, I think, because I, I can't, but so basically time takes away. I finally decided, listen, I'm going to write this thing about a family because that's the easiest thing for me to do is just use my GD family. They're all good actors. They all live here. We all, right? This, I don't have to, I know their schedules. I'm going to write a thing where we're a family and I'm the dad loser guy and I have this idea that the kids are old enough now to start making some of the family decisions. And so what we're going to do is instead of mom and I making all the decisions, we're going to vote. Okay? Now, this voting event, of course, will be immediately co-opted by the teenagers and they use it against us and everything spirals into kind of a socio-political commentary on the democratic system and political power and how it gets usurped by other interests yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Again, sounds like a pretty good idea. Why can't I just commit to that? So I sort of do. Because even as I'm explaining it to you now, I have to admit. And you may not think it's a good idea, but for me, it actually sounds like a good idea. Like as I say it to you and I hear it, it's coming out of my mouth. and then it's, But it's also because I have headphones in. Right? It's going into my ears. And as it goes into my ears, I got to admit, it actually sounds like a really good idea. It's kind of smart. could be kind of fun. Right? So the parents make the agreement. They tell the kids. The kids have this look in their eye like, oh, we can game this. And then you do like a thing where one of them is uh, 
trading their vote for this, for a vote for that, right? And the other one is uh, filibustering until bedtime and ha, ha, ha. And then then one of them uh, bribes mother for her vote or they're gerrymandering somehow where one of them gets two votes because they're now living in the bathroom as well. You know what I mean? Like a whole thing. So... I can't beat this idea. This is apparently my idea. So I write it. And as I'm writing it, I'm, you know, familiarity uh, breeds contempt, right? As I'm writing it, and this is just the inevitable, this is why I, this is why I'm a podcaster. This, this is going to be the least surprising thing that you've ever heard come out of my mouth. Because as I, as I write the thing, I become more and more familiar with it and I become less and less in love with it and it's, until it's really uh, boring. And I'm not saying it's boring. I'm saying it's just boring to me. Like, who cares? I get it. Uh, the, you know what I mean? Like the thing. Like there's a setup and then there's a bunch of wacky bullshit. And then uh, there's an ending and wah, wah, wah. And then I roll credits. Now, I don't honestly, in retrospect, I don't remember if the writing seminar was the first Saturday or the second Saturday. I think the writing seminar was the second – like somewhere there's a writing seminar in there. And my friend Scott said, hey, I went to the writing seminar. You know, it's really good. You should try to – if you can go, you should try to go. You pitch them your script and then you go all, all these plot beats and all this stuff and this woman really knows what she's doing. So on the day that I have to do this, it's also the same day that I've agreed to drive half of the school robotics team to Compton because they're participating in or men- – no, no, no. They're mentoring in some sort of middle school robotics uh, something, exhibition in Compton. And I think it was organized by one of Hudson's best friends, this this guy Ben who's awesome. Maybe Ben's mom helped him. Ben Ben has a big thing. So it's Ben's Compton Robotics thing. So I drive Hudson and uh, a couple of his friends from the robotics team out to and it turns out it's it's kind of the, right on the border of Compton and Paramount. Which is definitely one of those weird things like you really wonder how zoning and money gets divided because there's literally a line. <laughs> like you you get off the freeway and you're at the intersection like where the freeway goes under the main road is clearly the dividing line between Paramount and Compton. And apparently Paramount has a lot of money and Compton doesn't have a lot of money. And you can almost literally see the divide in the center of the road. <laughs> Where these two communities are divided, it, surreal. We we gotta we gotta figure that out. But basically, what I have to do is drive to Compton, drop the guys off, and then drive up to uh, West Hollywood. Uh, no, to Hollywood, Hollywood, for the writing seminar. And then I had to get out of the writing seminar in time to to go back to Compton to get them. So I go to the writing seminar. And uh, really, only two groups of people showed up. It was me, 
for my film and then two other people for one of the other films that were co-writing a thing. So because the at first it was just me and another woman and she was waiting for her partner. So I went first and I pitched the lady my thing. She's like, oh, that's really cute. And so what's your buzzword number one? And I'm say, mm-hmm. and say, so, okay, well, what's your buzzword number two? And she says, uh. And so we kind of structure this whole thing. And she has some ideas like, well, maybe the decision should be on a very finite thing, like where to go on vacation. I'm like, uh, I'm not going to argue. So in theory, we take my idea and it changes. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but we, you know, we tighten it up. We move it around. We do this. We do that. And I leave there having really workshopped this idea into something that I can definitely shoot. I can definitely cut. I can definitely – right? Now, I st- uh, it still feels like intro gags, outro, but it's – I at least have kind of like this, this seal of approval from this woman who knows what she's talking about. Okay? But it's me. So it doesn't matter what she said. It doesn't matter how solid it may or may not be. I'm already sick of it because there's something about it that isn't interesting to me in some new way. Right? And even if you're not that great at something, if it's a creative something, because you you know this, because you've been in this situation, or maybe you've recognized it before I did, maybe you haven't, maybe I'm explaining it to you, I don't know, but so much of what creative people do, they have to do uh, for, you know, you don't, like you just do it because you want to do it, you know what I mean, like you're not getting paid. If I was getting paid a million dollars, trust me, I would have no problem shooting the thing I'm telling you about. But I'm not getting paid a million dollars. It's going to cost me a couple hundred dollars to shoot this thing because undoubtedly I'm going to have to buy something, right? But it's another – in a way I'm thrilled because it's sort of like the second in maybe a trilogy of family comedies where, you know, my wife and my kids and I uh, do a little thing, right? It's got a little social – maybe a little social commentary or political – it's kind of a thing, satirical, whatever. But it's also me playing essentially myself again in my house again, in my street clothes again. I I mean, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Uh, I spend the next week, week. Now, this is a two-week window of opportunity. I spend, without exaggeration, the entire next week trying to figure out how not to shoot that script. Now, I could have shot it. I could have shot it easily, right? But I, I, I can't. There's something not in it that I – it, there's something – you know what? It just didn't seem like that much fun. It might have been fun to watch, but it, did, it just it, – uh, uh, I don't know, you know? Now, listen, maybe the problem is that it's just me and my family again, and I got to stop trying to make these little short films with only two people in the room. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason you have a crew. There's this community, this collaboration. Some of the social aspect is what makes it worthwhile. The collaborative aspect is what makes it worthwhile. But it's just me and my son or me and my wife or me and my daughter. It's just kind of pushing daddy's rock back up the hill, right? It's just... uh. So 
So the second Saturday, and I, I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm really not. The second Saturday of this thing, I arrive on set as an actor to my friend Scott's short by playing a reporter for Scott up in the valley. And uh, I'm meeting the other actors. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I did something last year. Oh, really? Are you doing something again this year? Yeah. Oh, really? What is it? I don't know. What do you mean? Well, I, I don't know. It's Saturday morning. I'm committed to being here until noon. I've committed to shooting something tomorrow. I think I know who is going to be in it, I guess, if they're available, because I talked to the guys. I have no idea what I'm shooting tomorrow. Well, do you have any ideas? Well, there's this political thing that I might, I don't know, this political thing or this kind of like dystopian thing or sort of like, you know, 1984 meets uh, this meets that. But I don't know. And uh, 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 uh. Now, my friend Raymond is there. Now, Raymond Kim Suttle is a British actor who I met last year who played the cowboy in Melophobia Americana. The guy's British. He's hilarious. I I love Raymond. Raymond has committed to being in my film because he's such a lovely guy and such a collaborative force. He doesn't know what we're going to shoot, but he's committed to doing it, whatever it is. God bless the guy. So after we shoot Scott's thing and I'm still telling Raymond, Raymond, I don't, I I assume we're shooting something tomorrow or I got to quit because this is driving me crazy. I'm riddled with anxiety, not knowing what I'm going to shoot. So he, he drags me to a coffee house and we sit down and we brainstorm more ideas. Well, tell me about the, the, uh, dystopian things so we talk about that we talk about oh, it could be a thing where these people and i'm like yeah we could do that we could i don't i don't i don't love any of it but the night before i think it was one in the morning i started a version of the Voting script, the, politi- the, the family gets to vote script. And I rejected in a moment of creative convulsion, all convention. Okay? In a creative convulsion, I jettisoned all convention. Does that make sense? And I broke the script. I tore it in half, but then I kept writing. And I wrote an almost nonsensical script that I thought was either brilliant or insane, but it, 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 it was at least true to how I was feeling. It wasn't text, uh, contextually true. Is that the word I'm looking for? You know what I mean? Like, if you watch the surface of it, the surface of it isn't true, but the feelings are under it are true because I was feeling all this anxiety. And 
I don't think I was sleeping well. I don't think I was eating well. I don't think my medication was treating me well. I, I think I was so full of anxiety and nothing was going right that I just had been so stuck for so long that I had to not mentally, but creatively snap because I wanted to write something and shoot something about almost about a mental state. Okay. And I think at some point, maybe it was the next morning. I don't know. At some point, my wife asked me how things were going. And I said, I don't know. I I wrote this thing and it's kind of crazy. I wrote it last night and, you know, this would happen. And then uh, Hudson and I would do this. And she was just like, oh, that's, you know, nice. (laughs) And not that she wasn't being supportive. But listen, sometimes people don't understand the crazy things you say when you say them. And that's why I don't like pitching things to people. I like either having an idea and then burying it in my guts or have an idea and try to execute the idea and then show people what I'm thinking. But I don't like to go, okay, well, it would be a cartoon where the newscaster is a, it has a big head and um, he does the news, but it's animated. But, but, it's, but the animated – right? I, do, I just don't. I want to just show you, prove I can do it, and then if you like it, whatever. So I need to leave now, physically leave. You're not going to experience anything, but I'm going to leave. I got to go to Costco and buy some uh, cookies, okay? When I come back, I will tell you about the shoot of all shoots. I will explain to you how awesome my friends are, my friends that I haven't talked to in months. That I will tell you then apparently how crappy a friend I am even though I really love my friends. Does that make sense? I have awesome friends whom I love, but who I really need to work harder at keeping in contact with so they know how much I appreciate them because silence is uh, not always very communicative. Okay, so in a moment, I'll be back. But when we talk again, I will have been to Costco. Actually, when we talk again, I will have probably been to Costco, picked up my daughter, come home. I may have even gone to see my son perform Shakespeare, come home, gone to sleep. Oh, God, I don't even, never mind. Listen, I, I don't know when I'm going to record the rest of this, but I will have missed you. When I get back, I will have missed. I don't know if I'm going to remember to say that again, because as a friend, not that great. But I'm telling you now, the truth of when I get back is that I will have missed you. Whether I say it or not, we'll see. Okay? Anyway, I'll be right back. Okay, so I I am back, but I got to tell you something. Did my voice sound really high just now, before, when I was speaking? Did did my voice or did not my voice, English, is, uh, did did it or did it not sound kind of high, like fast? Like it was sped up or something. Am I the only one that kind of felt that way because I I basically before I started recording now I went back in time in your time I went back in time like 10 seconds I listened to part of the recording and I, I got to tell you something my voice sounded very high so if I can give you uh, any podcasting advice it would definitely be this do not record half of a story stop recording 
and then assume that you're going to record the rest of the story later when between those two recording sessions, there is a presidential election. Because I guarantee you, your silly little story about what you did or did not accomplish over the summer pales in comparison to any presidential, no matter how the outcome you think is going to affect you or not or whatever, trust me, trust me. Now I'm going to continue uh, telling you the story that I was telling you before, and then we'll talk a little bit about the election later. But I don't want to muddy the story, the incredibly engaging story of my failure with talk of the election. I think that should wait until later and then after I've established that I maintain my failure status, then let's uh, talk about the election. And I'll try to get you to take me seriously, even though, again, once again, for probably the like 350 some odd time, I've given you every reason to think I'm adult. Okay? Okay. Now, the first way you can tell that I'm an idiot is uh, that I always eat and then drink a little Diet Coke before I record Uh, And that's horrible because, you know, it's not good to record this close to a microphone with bits of almond in your teeth and caffeine coursing through your veins. But we're going to try. So I think where we left off was, I think, uh, okay, so I have about 13 scripts, none of which I want to record. Shoot, excuse me. One of them is about the family uh, deciding they're going to vote on things and then the kids uh, decide they're going to vote and they're going to scam the system. <laughs> they're going to set up an electoral college with a loophole that no one ever uses. Okay, And then um, – wow, I'd love to shoot it now. And, um, and then there's one where I deconstruct that script. There's one where I like – I don't even remember what it was. Something about going to the top of a hill and crying for some reason. I don't even remember that that one was about. Some was one was this kind of dystopian thing that Raymond and I bandied about at the coffee house after Scott's shoot. So we, I went to Scott's shoot the day before I was supposed to shoot. We shot until like noon or two or whatever it was. Then I went to coffee with Raymond, Kim Subtle, and we brainstormed. I, I'm telling you, man, it's crazy. I'm pretty sure I came home that night and locked myself in the studio here. And then that's where I wrote this thing I barely remember where somehow I end up at the top of a hill in Griffith Park yelling or something. Oh, and then the dystopian one that I was going to say where somebody has to volunteer to die or something. I don't know. It was very weird. Basically, what happened is I sat at my dining room table and I wrote and wrote. I wanted to write this kind of dystopian thing. And I wrote and wrote and wrote for hours and Raymond... He texted me and checked in and said, hey, how's it going? And I said, great. I'm pretty sure I just spent the last three hours writing uh, George Orwell's 1984. And he said, how is it? And I said, uh, Orwell, is, or, or, he's a genius. So at some point in the evening, I think Hudson, my son, came out here to the studio to check on me and make sure I hadn't hung myself. <laughs> and to see if I was coming up with anything that I liked, which I was not. So I said to him, you know, man, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I don't 
everything seems boring to me. The only thing I think I want to shoot is the crazy idea where I basically took the script that I had and I put it in a blender and then however it came out, that was just it, right? And he said, well, you know, it probably would be fun. I mean, if that's what you want to shoot, that's what you would want to shoot. And so he and I start brainstorming and it, you know, becomes aware, uh, becomes clear to me very, very quickly. That what I really need more than anything as a grown adult is the approval of my teenage son. I mean, that's just really kind of the truth of it. Because honestly, there's probably no one on earth whose opinion I value more than him. I created him in a laboratory over the last 25 years in a way to be the superhuman that he is today, right? Me meeting and mating with his mother, that was all part of a grand scheme to create a super race of human beings. Now, I grant you, we only made two. We made one of each. But so far, all evidence points to my success. My friend, if and when I leave this planet, I will leave it safe in the knowledge that I have succeeded creating two superhumans. So it is decided that we're just going to listen. We, we, I can't think about it anymore. I have to just decide what I'm going to shoot. So it's decided I'm going to shoot the crazy script. And I mean crazy because I just sat there on the sofa at one in the morning and went, you know what? I'm feeling kind of crazy. I'm just going to write whatever crazy shit, you understand, comes into my mind. And that's what we're going to shoot. Now, to complicate things further, this is the same weekend that Hudson, my son, has to finish his big year-long biology project. And this biology project requires him taking, I think it's 125 photographs of plants, animals, various native wildlife, and labeling them. Now, obviously, he's had the entire school year to do this. And obviously, I have had two entire weeks to write, shoot, edit, and uh, finish my short film. So, of course, the last day of... That right? He uh, 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 yes. The day that I'm shooting the film, the short film that I've been putting out for two weeks, is the day that I promised him we would go try to finish the biology project because there's no more time to do that either. So Friday night we go to a party city or whatever to look for little bits of costumes, but without exaggeration, we're driving home the day we're going to shoot now. Scott and Scott and Raymond, I don't think they even know what we're going to shoot other than I told Raymond to bring a tuxedo. We're driving home from the other side of town where we've been photographing snake parts and flowers. 
It's four in the afternoon, and we're planning. We we have to find something to make a makeshift superhero costume for me. Now I won't tell you too much about w- what we ended up with because you might as well just see it. I don't want to. You know what I mean? I don't want to give the whole thing away. But I will tell you this: we were still collecting pieces of this 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 makeshift costume at six p.m. at six. PM. So the shoot entails for this for the day for that day. Now I, I knew I was going to have to shoot some the next day, but for that day it entailed. So Raymond's going to come over. He's going to put on his tux, and we're going to shoot some stuff where Hudson and I are in street clothes at our table in the backyard outside. We have a table. It has an umbrella. We're going to okay. We're going to shoot the bit where Raymond comes in in his tuxedo. We're going to shoot the rest of that scene the next day when the girls are home because, oh, yeah, did I mention this is also the same week that my daughter and my wife, both of whom I have very strategically written into the movie, are spending the weekend out of town at a dance competition. So they're sleeping at the house, but they're not really home. They're spending the entire day and night in uh, Anaheim or Long Beach or somewhere at a big competition. So Raymond shows up. Scott, my friend Scott Mercer, shows up. He's literally the crew. We're all pulling double duty as the rest of us are like actors slash sound department slash prop slash slash your throat. So we shoot Raymond's thing. Um, and it actually times out perfectly because the sun is going down. The rest of it needs to be shot in the dark because that's just been the plan, apparently. Now, I have it in my head, my my friend, that, again, again, to make it interesting for me, I can't just shoot a bunch of people talking around a thing, like a table or something. Because really... To just do a good job at that would be a huge accomplishment for me. It would push my abilities as a filmmaker, quote unquote, leaps and bounds. But no, 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 that cannot possibly satisfy yours. Truly, I want to shoot a scene where Hudson and I pretend to be driving. And we shoot it using what is called poor man's process. Now, what that is, is you shoot at night, you pretend you're driving you get a guy to shake the car and uh, outside the car, you've got maybe like a light that you pretend you like pass back and forth in front of the car along the car to simulate uh, headlights. All night. All night. All night. No, great. Right. Because we started 6 p.m. We now, you know, there's an alley behind our house, right? It's actually not even an alley. It's a road. But this stretch of the road for two or three blocks, it's only the backs of houses. So it's a real street. It's a legitimate street with two-way traffic and parking regulations and everything. It's a, it's a street, but it feels like just a huge alley. So we're out there with my Mazda parked in the dark. Hudson and I are dressed as superheroes. And we're shooting poor man's process. Our crew member is wearing a tuxedo 
This this is the most ridiculous thing I have ever done, and I'm thrilled. Several hours are wasted making and manipulating this thing, which is supposed to look like a car is behind us. What it really is is a big black piece of foam core with two holes stuck uh, cut into it, right? And behind the holes is a light. And so as we're shooting, Raymond in a tuxedo stands in the dark with this, these two fake headlights and moves them around behind us to simulate cars behind us. But because Raymond is such an actor, he can't simply stand there with the headlights and make it look like we're in traffic or there just happens to coincidentally be a car behind us. He's moving the lights around like we're in a high-speed pursuit. The thing is, we're not in a high-speed pursuit. We're really just two guys having a very low-key conversation in the car while a drunk driver chases us at 38,000 miles an hour. We shot with that stupid thing. Take after take for hours. But then we realized that it was actually more important to have Raymond shake the car because the car was just sitting still. So we dumped the headlight thing and had Raymond shake the car. Then we shot a bunch of other takes from, with different camera angles of where, the, where Raymond is, is shaking the car. But as you can imagine, if this camera angle has the car shaking and this camera angle has the car shaking and this camera angle has the car shaking, you cannot use any of the footage that you shot in the nighttime for hours where the car is not shaking, it looks too stupid, right? It just looks too stupid. Like whenever you're on this angle, the car's perfectly still and there's some idiot chasing you. But all the other angles, you're apparently driving through a, what, a gravel pit? Like what is happening? Then I, and I also, in this script, I got it in my head. Oh, God, I, 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 needed, I, I need a mentor. I got it in my head that it would be a funny idea in, in, in a scene for us to be eating. Okay? And I decide that we should be eating French fries. Because there's something about my sense of humor. Now, you know, you, you've known me for many years. Many of, of the people listening to this have known me for years. You've, this can't possibly be your first podcast. So you know that, yeah, that, that actually sounds oddly enough like something that Dan would decide would be funny. Two or three people sitting in a car eating French fries somehow to Dan is funny. So. We've been shooting at, at a certain point for hours, and I think it's like one, one in the morning or two, two in the I – don't, I don't, my memory is that it's one in the morning. It can't possibly be one in the morning because nothing would be open in Westchester at one in the morning. But whatever time it was, we finally decided, you know, hey, maybe I should feed these guys. All the moving car stuff at this point I'm pretty sure is finished. And so we take a break. 
and we go get Mexican food at a place that's actually open and serving food. At whatever time this was, again, I thought it was 11, but now that I think, I have no idea what time it was. Are Mexican places in Westchester open? At 2 in the morning, I have no, I, I don't have a clue. So we go to this Mexican restaurant. We get Mexican food. I'm still, I don't need, I'm so wired and so tired that I have half of my costume on still eating Mexican food. I don't care. I have like a green, I don't even know what to call this color. I really don't. It's, it's like a neon turquoise shirt. Over the neon turquoise shirt, listen, I don't know why I thought this was going to be a costume, but, but this is the costume. A neon turquoise, I don't know what to call this color shirt. Over that, I decided I needed to put a purple T-shirt, but the purple T-shirt that I found has uh, the logo of my son's robotics team on it. So the shirt is inside out, but you can still see backwards the the logo of it says humans backwards because that's the name of their robotics team, the humans. Ha ha ha. Right. I think Hudson is still in his sort of like modern day Robin Batman and Robin costume. We don't care. We don't care. Ray Mc, for all I know, is wearing his tuxedo. At, so if you can imagine, I think it's funny that we're going to be eating uh, French fries in the scene. We're actually in a Mexican restaurant in the middle of the night with Scott, who's actually the normal one. Two idiots half-dressed like superheroes and a British uh, guy in a tuxedo. So now we need French fries. So we go get French fries. Now, obviously, as long as there's a McDonald's, and trust me, there is, you can get French fries any time of the day or night. So we went and got some fries. And so the scene calls for three of us to be sitting in my car eating French fries while we have a conversation. Now, I don't know what it is about. I'm not going to analyze French fry humor. But you understand what I'm talking about, right? French fries, in, in the context of this scene, I mean, you tell me, you watch the scene. I'm going to post the scene. And I want you to, the, the, like I said, the short is horrible. It's, it's crazy. It's just crazy. But I'm going to post the middle of it, the part that I super love. Somebody I'll show you the whole thing. I'm not keeping it from you. But, but watch this scene because the scene really did. I got to tell you something. For Of all the things in my life that I've set out to, to do, that I pictured ahead of time and then tried to do and then did, that scene is absolutely exactly what I wanted. Now, I'm not saying I should have written the scene. I'm not saying that I should have written or shot that particular short film. But I am saying that scene where we're eating the french fries is exactly what I envisioned. Now, whether you think it's funny or not, I have no idea. All I'm just telling you, that part was a complete success. Now, the problem with it being a complete success is this. If you go to McDonald's at whatever time it was and you go through the drive-thru, now, it takes a long time for some reason to get French fries. They, I think they gave us super fresh French fries, which as you know, one of the most amazing things in the world is super fresh French fries. But what my plan required, and I really clearly did not think this through, 
was getting super fresh french fries, driving them back to my house, parking in the road slash alley behind my house, putting the rest of my superhero costume back on, setting up the lights and the camera again, getting the sound equipment carefully situated inside the car, checking focus, checking lights, checking this, checking that, and then eating cold French fries. Take after take after take for what could easily have been an hour or two. French fries are magical, but they're part of part of their magic. And you know this in your heart. You know part of that magic of the experience of a truly transcendent American French fry is the fact that a French fry is like a snowflake. It's a fleeting thing. It comes to fruition and it peaks. It's at the height of its deliciousness for a very short amount of time. And after that short amount of time has passed, it is a disgusting, disgusting thing that you should never put in your mouth, let alone chew up and swallow over and over again in the middle of the night. Now, when I was recording before the other day, which was actually a week ago, but still, two minutes, five, ten, whatever that was ago, I claimed that I have awesome friends and an awesome son. And so here's the proof. I'm not exactly paying these guys anything. They are not going to become rich or famous or adored or get sexual uh, uh, favors or anything based on having worked on this thing. Really, all they're going to get is the experience, and then hopefully I'm going to be able to pull it off well enough where it's going to get accepted into the screening and maybe win an award or something. I don't know, but, but really they're just doing it because they're my friends and because they love doing what we do. I keep those guys outside working in and out of my car behind my house until four or five in the morning. Maybe it was three. I don't, I'd have to look it up. It it was so early slash late slash early that I, it was stunning. No one got bitchy. Hudson got tired. Let's not kid ourselves. He's a busy high school kid. He was exhausted. We were all exhausted, but no one got bitchy. No one rushed. All of us were always collaborating and and coming up with ideas and trying to push the thing forward. Now, it wasn't always forward in a straight line, but it was always forward. And the whole purpose of the thing was to collaborate. And that's what we did. And I think we had a blast. But at like four in the morning or whatever it was, I drove Raymond back up to Hollywood 
dropped him off somewhere where he was house sitting. I drove Scott up to where he lives uh, in. Uh, don't remember the name of that town. I don't remember seeing the girls. I think I actually drove those guys home um, during the time that the girls got up again at the crack of dawn and went to the recital. I don't remember seeing them. So the next day is a Monday. Now, was that a holiday weekend? Like, how confused am I? It must have been a holiday weekend. Now, listen, I'm not proud of this. But we have a woman who comes and cleans the house every two weeks. Okay? It's, it's so I can get things done and so I can work. And also because I just can't stay focused enough to do it. I, I don't <laughs> – you know what I mean? Like I have enough problems staying focused on the things I'm supposed to be doing, let alone cleaning the house. So every two weeks a woman comes and she cleans and then I try to do it every other week or you know, not all at once, like spots. You know what I mean? But I've been so focused on grinding out the script and deciding on the script and worrying about it. I have never called her, as my wife suggested, to ask her to just not bother coming. So I get in bed at, let's say, 6 in the morning. And she shows up to clean the house at, let's say, seven, uh, 8 in the morning. So Hudson and I get no sleep i literally i I think actually i just said to her listen don't worry about hudson's room he's in there he needs to sleep let's just i will take care of cleaning his room and the she uh just let's okay so i'm so tired i have to throw hail mary and i text or call or whatever my friend caleb and I say, hey, man, remember you said that you'd be up for helping me? I swear to God, I can't think. Can, can you help me? Because if so, I kind of have a chance of finishing the shooting of this thing. And if not, uh, so Caleb, rock star, comes over. I honestly don't really remember much of what happened other than he came over and we shot the girls part of the show, which was um, the stuff that we shot with Raymond, but before he shows up at the table outside. So, so Caleb comes over, we get everything set up. The, the girls eventually come home and have a snack or whatever. They come out. We shoot the scene. I am so delirious. I, do, I, I, you know, Caleb, listen, when someone says to you, Hey, do you think we should shoot a close up of such and such? You just honestly say yes. Just say yes and just shoot it. But I'm worried about, like, the girls are exhausted. I'm exhausted. I feel guilty that I dragged Caleb all the way from the other side of town. Hudson is out there, I think, and he's about had it with me. You know what I'm, So I don't know that I necessarily got everything that I needed. And honestly, the, I think there are just certain cinematic rules that I continue to not follow when shooting dialogue. And now I don't really fully understand this until I go to start shooting the whole thing. Or, uh, excuse me, editing. I think I have time to finish it. 
I start syncing the footage as soon as I can the next day. I think Hudson has like a half day or it's his birthday. I don't even remember what, what, but I'm syncing. It just was crazy. But I should have enough time to sync the sound and cut. I know exactly what I want. I know exactly what I want. Right? I got to shoot some pickup shots of Tulu, uh, my daughter. The night I'm editing, I just don't know what's happening. I don't know if I'm asking too much of the computer or I'm asking too long of the computer or if just my mental faculties are such that I can't problem solve as quickly as I should be able to, but it's just not getting done quickly enough. Almost, but not quickly enough. And I'm constantly doing the math. Here's the problem. It keeps re- – and I, I don't want to get too into the nitty-gritty of how this works. But basically when you're cutting, you should just be able to cut. But the, the software keeps saying, well, we, we got to render that again, man. And I keep saying, but you already rendered that and you shouldn't have had to render it at all because I made right great strides to – you. But no, no, man. We got to render that again. OK, go ahead and Render. Render. But can, then we, can we stop rendering? Yeah, don't worry about it. Just render this time. Okay, and I would render, and then I'd make a couple cuts. They're like, no, man, hold on. We got to render. So I don't know what setting was on. I don't know what I did. I, I didn't have time to troubleshoot it. But I kept having to render, 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 render all the time. And what that means is time is ticking away, which means I don't have time to put in all of the music I want to put in. And all of the sound effects I want to put in. And I don't have time for this little transition or that transition. And I can't seem to... So I finish. I, I'm like, listen, I have to stop working on it. I have to export it. The due date deadline hard time is coming. And it's coming too quickly. And I get to a point where I have to just shut my eyes and throw the ball and hope that someone downfield catches it and we score. But I don't have time to open my eyes and make sure the pass was complete. I just have to throw it and then see what happens. So the film is submitted on time. But because of the rendering and really because of my anxiety about what to shoot and then and my procrastination about making those decisions, all the mistakes that I've made, all the bad decisions I've made and all the technical issues I've had have put me in this position where I did not have the time to really watch the output before I uploaded it. I just had to hope that the steps that I took led to a decent enough film that they would make a decision based on whatever I sent. And that would just be good enough. Well, you have to wait about a week 
to find out who's going to screen. You, you find out who's going to be in the screening, I think, literally the day before the screening. And last year, as you know, my, my film for this thing screened, and I even won some kind of award. So I, I'm optimistic in that I've been successful in the past. And I'm somewhat optimistic because I think the parts that I remember of the film coming together came together. I'm not optimistic about the piece as a whole, and I'm certainly not optimistic about whatever condition it is in. And I have no concept of how finished it's going to look to a panel of judges that don't know me. They announced the list on Thursday, the Thursday before the Friday screening. And I'm not on the list. It didn't get chosen to even screen. And neither did the films of a couple of people that I was in contact with. And I'll tell you, it's very hard to go to the screening if you thought you had a chance of screening. And it's very hard to stay <laughs> enthusiastic, right? To stay enthusiastic when you feel like you've failed. Now, I'm not saying that I always have to win, so to speak. And I'm not even saying that I should have won, meaning uh, been accepted into the screening. It's just I felt like I failed myself and my cast and crew. The screening, I was kind of dreading the screening because what you really don't want to do is submit to something like this, not get accepted, and then they screen the films and you think they all stink because that would be crushing. But the screening actually had a lot of good work in it. A lot of good work. Now, was all of it fantastic? Uh, you know, I don't know. I got to tell you something. I didn't understand that one. I thought that one was super self-indulgent. And I thought that one, uh, like, I, uh, oh God, really? I just didn't get it or it was too, you know, it was like too heavy-handed. Whatever. The point is, the screening was definitely, without question, way good enough to for me to feel good that it was a fair fight and I just didn't uh, come out victorious. What I did win is proof of concept. Because I love the scene from the film that I love. The scene, specifically, really, mostly the French fry scene. I'm going to, right? The scene right before the French fry scene, the French fry scene, and then the scene right after the French fry. I just, there's the dynamic with those characters that I love. I love the characters. So, proof of concept-wise, I won. 
And hopefully, unless other things really blossom, you will see those characters really, truly come to fruition. If I can, for once in my life, really finish doing what I set out to do, and have three things, I know, maybe four things, okay, maybe I'm nuts, that I want to try to pull off in the next, let's say, year. Hopefully that is among them. So take a watch watch the video. Let me know what you think. I think it's funny and that's the, it's like it would be f- funny to me and fun to me and that's really that's what life is, right? Spending enough time in your life doing things that you think are fun to justify surviving all the stuff that really is not that that much fun. So, listen, I want to say a few words about the election. Um, whether you agree with what I'm about to say or not, I, I would really like to know. Because I hope it makes sense, and I hope that I say it in a way that is exactly what I mean, but we will see. So, a lot of people right now are very upset about the way the election went. And it is a very much a razor, razor's edge election in that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Uh, Donald Trump won the electoral vote. Uh, reportedly, near, let's round off, nearly 50% of registered voters didn't even vote. Which I, And I'd love to know why that was. I, sus- I, I suspect slash fear that it was that enough uh, liberals and Democrats were so self-assured that there's no way we could elect Donald Trump that they just didn't even bother voting. Because I have a hard time picturing um, people that supported Donald Trump not voting. You know what I mean? Like Because that, that was a campaign not about complacency or confidence in who's going to win, Right. Anyway, so this is what I'll, so this is what I wanted to say is um, a lot of people are upset about Trump winning, and I count myself among them. But I want to be very clear that I am not upset because the Democratic uh, candidate did not win, and I'm not upset because the Republicans candidate did win. I'm upset that 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 candidate won and won in the way that he went about winning. I uh, listen, you know, I have friends that are Democrats and friends that are Republicans. And I, um, you know, here in my immediate life and then most certainly I have a lot of friends, I'm sure, from where I grew up that are not coming from the same political place that I'm coming from. I've lived in Los Angeles since the 80s. This is a very liberal, urban, uh, heterogeneous, you know what I mean, situation where where I went to high school is just completely different. So 
I have a lot of friends that are Democrats and I have a lot of friends that are Republicans. And we have different ideas about how things should or shouldn't be. So if a Republican wins, you have to understand, of course, people that are Democrats are going to be a little upset. But that's just kind of normal. That's kind of like when President Obama was elected or when George W. Bush was elected, right? Whoever's elected, the other party, you know, you feel bad because, you know, the taxes are going to be spent or not spent this way. Immigration is going to go that way, right? we, We all have differing opinions on how things should work. The Trump campaign was... And people keep telling me that the Trump campaign is about fixing America and making America better. But it didn't feel like that. It felt like a campaign actually about dividing us even more than we're normally divided. North versus South, divisions among the races, divisions among the religious groups, Divisions, divisions, divisions. It was about splitting us apart to get our votes. It was about fear-mongering and fanning the flames of xenophobia. So I do want to say, uh, if anyone still listens to this sh- uh, uh, these shows that doesn't agree with me politically, you know that I try to keep the political talk to a minimum. And I get into trouble every election because, you know, every election I, it, it becomes clear that I'm a Hollywood liberal, okay? But here's the real truth of, of how I see our relationship, whether you agree or disagree with me. I respect you and I want to know you better. L- legitimately, I do. I very sincerely want to understand why we're so divided. Because, yes, I understand that you are different from them, whoever them is, right? The people that live in my old hometown have a completely different experience than I do. Or the people that live in Montana, or the people that live in Kentucky, or the people that live in Arizona. Arizona is very close to here. Their lives are completely different than mine. So they may or may not vote completely differently than I do. They may have very different ideas about how taxes should be spent, about how immigration should be dealt with, but all the, the issues that we don't agree on. And I will continue to be vocal about how I feel about those issues, but I, I say this with 100% sincerity. I want to have conversations with people about it, like rational conversations where you try to explain yourself to me and I try to explain myself to you. And, and at the end of the conversation, we don't have to, to agree at all. But I do want us to, at the very least, understand each other. Because I, I sincerely think that if the North understood the South, if the middle understood the ends if the people that live in relatively homogeneous areas understood where the people are coming from that live in relatively 
heterogeneous areas, racially mixed, mix of religion, mix of uh, gender identities, mix of whatever. I think we would all get along a lot better. And I think we would have a much better chance of solving problems that really exist in this country. I've decided that I think part of the problem is political parties as a concept. And it's, it's, I have, it's the same itchy feeling that I get in the back of my head about religions. Not religion, not faith, not your belief or lack of belief in God, but the fact that we have to pick sides and we have to create teams. Because if, it, if it's just faith, without religions, then we're all together, right? Because if it's just faith without religions, then really all we, like it's, we're just a group of people and all we kind of want really is uh, peace <laughs> and decent behavior out of others, some sort of common uh, moral code, right? But as soon as we get religions... The, you're, you're automatically dividing each other because, because there's teams. Now somebody has to be better than someone else or those people do it the wrong way and we do it the right way, right? Okay, so, so a concept like faith, like a belief in God or a belief in a moral code or a belief in whatever automatically is dividing people when that is exactly the essence of something that should be bringing us together. And political parties in a way, are the same thing because I firmly believe – and listen, maybe I'm just a naive idiot and I accept that about myself. But because we have – for lack of argument, let's just say we have a two-party system. Obviously, we don't literally have a two-party system, but let's be honest. We essentially have a two-party system, OK? I, I truly believe – that we as human beings are way more complex and much smarter and have a much higher capacity to understand varying degrees of things. We're, we're able to understand gray areas much better than something that is, is as binary as Democrats and Republicans, as conservatives and liberals, because Again, as soon as you have to choose between only two things, we're limiting ourselves as people. And those teams become restrictive. Because then, because, right, you feel like you have to pick a side, which means, okay, so I'm going to pick a side, which that means the other side is wrong. So now you're already not listening to the other people. So now half of the people you're shunning instead of listening to because we've chosen sides, right? The truth is I would imagine – now listen, obviously in, in our binary system, the Democrats and the Republicans, they are very different. But there's a huge gray area where we overlap in the true Venn diagram of what is important to us as Americans, that's that middle piece where the two rings intersect, right? I truly believe that that is way bigger 
than we even realize because we don't spend enough time together. We don't spend enough time looking each other in the eye and listening. Because it's a lot easier to just pick a team and then keep updated on those memos and quote those memos and not have to think. No matter what you call yourself, no matter how you identify, whether you're straight or gay or trans, whether you're conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, whether you're Christian, atheist, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever it is, I suspect that all of us at our core really simply want all the same exact things, to be left the F alone, to just be happy, to be well, to be fed, to be safe, period. Now, we have extremely different ideas about how to go about that. We have extremely different ways of thinking on ways to divvy up the money. To, to keep ourselves safe, to keep ourselves right, – right. I get that. I get that. I get that. But the only way we're going to work that stuff out is if we sit down from the middle, from the place of common goal, sincere common goal, and then try to figure it out. Because I don't believe the left can survive without the right. And I don't believe the right – can survive without the left. I don't believe it is in our best interests for the urbanites to try to get along without the country folk. And I don't and I didn't mean that in a disparaging way. I kind of came out that way and I apologize. My my point is the city needs the country and the country needs the city. We do. The straight people need the gay people. We do. The gay people need the straight people. Trust me, if we just decide, if there was some way that we could just all decide, listen, there's a group, we're just going to wipe out that group. Whatever group that you've been told to fear, right? You have been told to fear some group your whole life. Whoever that group is, if we somehow figured out a way, we just push a button and wipe out that group, I swear to you, they would be missed. There would be part of our lives, our society, our culture, our progress as humans that would be stunted by taking anyone out of our ecosystem. Because that's what we are. We're an ecosystem. Now, listen, it's not a, a perfect system. And there are a bunch of assholes. And there are a bunch of people that ideologically are not keeping up with us or technologically are not keeping up with us or kind of being cool, man, not keeping up, right? Okay, I get it. I, I'm not saying we're all perfect. But I'm saying if you can look past the extremists, and I mean right-wing extremists and left-wing extremists. I mean Christian extremists, atheist extremists, straight I, Straight, okay, all the if you just look past all the yelling and screaming and the fear and the fear mongering and the finger pointing, 
the majority, the silent majority, is all of the normal people that just want to leave, uh, lead relatively normal lives. That want to hang out with their friends and hang out with their families and do the things they like doing with their friends and families. They want to go to bed at night comfortable and safe and wake up the next day and have enough to eat, to have work to do that satisfies them and pays them enough money to continue the American dream. We are a huge, diverse, rich country. And if we really, truly, really, truly, really, truly work together, I think we can literally do anything we want. I think if we wanted to feed everyone, we could do it. I think if we wanted to house everyone, we could do it. And I think we could do it in a way that no one would feel like they were suffering unjustly for it. We would all probably have to compromise a little bit, but the compromise would be so far overshadowed by all that we would collectively gain. It is so worth it. I want to have a dialogue with you. An open, honest, let's try to figure things out dialogue with you from now on. And I promise you, I am under no delusion, illusion, or any kind of other illusion that I am uh, smart enough to wrap my head around most of this. You know that I am an idiot. But I really believe that my heart is in the right place, and I believe that your heart is in the right place. I, I sincerely think that the vast majority of Americans who have been told year after year, and I'm not blaming the current, everyone tells us all the time, no matter who the president is, no matter who the news anchor is, no matter what channel you're, we're always being divided. The media divides us, advertising divides us, politics divides us, everything divides us, that it's something in our nature. But you know what? We're civilized. Because I think our true nature is to not be divided. Our really super true evolved nature is to be together and help each other and work it out. And none of us can do it alone. So let's do it together starting now. My name is Dan Klass. And I approve this message. Uh, listen, I am not running for uh, political office. I am, uh, although it's it's tempting, even as just like a you know what I mean, just just to start certain conversations. It is so tempting to put on a suit and a lapel pin. Listen, purely coincidentally, the the current election and the results of the election course uh, co- coincide with me deciding that I need to devote my life 
to things that matter more than just complaining into this microphone. So, um, I am probably going to get a lot more honest about the way I feel about issues. I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot more honest about the things that I feel are important. And, and not divisive issues, just issues that I feel are important. Uh, something happened recently that, I'll, again, we'll get into it later if I'm... I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it or not, but something happened in the real world that reminded me how passionate I am about a certain topic. And so um, I feel like my energy, my heart, my life is going to go... It it just reminded me that, you know what? Um, It's more important to be an entertainer if you're an entertainer that is helping teach people something, enrich their lives... Uh, bring people together, whatever, right? And one of the reasons I've done this podcast for 12 years is that very early on I would get emails from people saying, oh my God, Dan, you have no idea how much I relate to your show. Uh, I'm a stay-at-home parent, or I am a parent, or I wish I was a parent, or I used to be like this, or I used to be like that, or whatever. And we've we've talked about a lot of things over the last decade or so, right? Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I am now more consciously hoping to serve. And I want to talk more about issues and less about the things that I have anxiety about. Now, part of that is because uh, I am uh, not feeling as much anxiety as I was when I made the short. And so it is a a lot easier for me to be clear-headed about ideas and how I feel about things, which is wonderful. So there's some issues that I want to tackle. If you want to help me, listen, uh, I'm all for it because um, I think there's more to life than just having fun with your friends and just uh, doing what you want to do and just being safe and well-fed. I think there also needs to be a component where you get to a point in your life where you realize it's time to, um, you know, either give back or at least exert some of your energy in directions that will help other people in some way. I will be less vague about that next time. But listen, um, regardless of how you uh, voted, um, I hope you're safe and well. I think you all know my straight white friends but also my not-as-straight friends, my not-as-white friends, my not-male friends. Do you understand that I love you all? And I hope you're all doing well, and I hope you're all safe. The concept of America very early on was that it was going to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. It was going to be a melting pot of people from all over the world That is what makes us great, and that is why I love you so much. Because you are you, you, and you're unique, and your greatest strength is just being you. And teaching me what that means so we can be ourselves together and kick some effing ass. Maybe the bitterest pill just isn't going to be as bitter as it used to be. Too bad. 
my friends, I uh, wish you nothing but strength and happiness. Uh, don't worry, I still, uh, <laughs> I still, <laughs> it's still me, folks. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, next time, we're probably going to talk about how a mouse ate uh, everything. The reconstruction of Studio G and my plans for Studio G and uh, what's actually come to pass with Studio G. Uh, We'll talk about my son doing another Shakespeare play. We will talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about karate, my gorgeous daughter, um, my uh, wife. Maybe you can give me some insight, ladies, on um, helping me figure out if my wife loves me or hates me. Um, and so much more so anyway thank you as always for downloading I think I've babbled uh, long enough I can't wait to see how long this uh, this is what happens when I take months off it's hard to come back and then just do it uh, right okay and don't forget Dan the bitterest pill is made possible thanks to the generosity of our Patreon patrons patrons like Megan Peter Chase Justin Young Jim Cariotis, Mike Hamilton, Jeff Short, Rob Houston, Dave Jackson, Harold Goldner, Flores, Tom Carroll, David Chase and Gerard Corchines, Chris Class, Scott Mercer, and many others. You all make the show possible. If you are not currently a patron, but would like to help support the show, simply go to thebitterestpill.com. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. My name is Dan Class. This has been the Bitterest Pill Podcast. Podcasts started in 2004. Yeah. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Music in this episode is the song Minor Event by Nango from their album Chrome. For more information, go to the post for this episode. The Bitter's Pill is produced by Jacket Media, makers of fine podcasts since 2004. That's 